When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another new episode of the Declutter Me podcast with myself, Shalina. This week, my guest is Dr. Lavina Ouja. Dr. Lavina is a UK trained counseling psychologist with over a decade of experience in the UK, the UAE, and Canada. Um, Dr. Lavina is based at German Neuroscience Center in Dubai Healthcare City and works with individuals, families, and couples to help them with their various mental health and relationship issues. In her work with individual clients, she specializes in dealing with anxiety issues and OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, I often work with clients who are dealing with relationship issues as well as mental health issues. So I thought it would be great to talk to her and get some more insight to share with you all today. So welcome, Dr. Lavina, to the Declutter Me podcast. I'm so happy you're here and we got to finally chat. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, finally. <laughs> so... Tell me first a bit about you, about your background. I understand you're a proper Dubai, Dubaiat, as they call it. Yeah, um, I'm one of the the, the rare uh, Dubaiites uh, in the sense that I was born, brought up here. Right. Uh, so in essence, you know, Dubai's home. Um, I was born here. I was brought up here. I did my school, high school, all of that here. I remember Dubai for. JLT even existed where I currently work. Right. So, okay. um, yeah, it was very, very different Dubai. And I think anybody and everybody who kind of is from the old Dubai kind of knows what I'm talking about a little bit. But, right. um, um, yeah. And, um, but I've also had a little bit of the expat experience because I went away to kind of study. And so I was out of the country for on and off about nine years. My family's here. So I kind of came right back. Right. And then I had to kind of readjust to life in Dubai in a lot of ways, which was a very different Dubai than when I left. So I can really empathize with the expat experience as well, because yep. um, the roads that were there when I left were not the roads <laughs> that were there when I came back. To be and, fair, that happens sometimes in a day. So yeah, they do na- yeah. like renaming roads overnight. So that's that's yeah, that's not. Well, also, Dubai went through an expansion phase whereby we had a new mall opening every couple of months. I remember yep. I used to kind of fly down with my fam- uh, to meet my family, and my family would be like, "Hey, let's take you to this brand new mall that's opened," and I'd be like. Uh, you must. I just visited the new mall last time. Like I came six months ago, and we visited the new mall. Yeah, and they're like, no, no, no. There's another new mall, and you're yeah. like, okay, yeah. Uh, let's go check out the new mall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I, I came in 2005, so I remember all that. Yeah, it was good times. Good, yeah, yeah. no. No, crazy, crazy. And so Absolutely. what drew you to studying psychology and becoming a doctor in the field? Well, um, 
as odd as it sounds, so um, I'm I'm uh, so I, I was born brought up in Dubai, but I'm originally Indian. So my parents were Indian, and uh, my parents both are the eldest in their um, families, in their uh, respective families. Right. And one of the things that happens when you're the eldest in the family is that you're the go-to person for. Uh, my mom was the go-to person for all personal and 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 relationship issues. Yep. My dad was the go-to person because he also has his own business. My dad was the go-to person for business and um, any kind of financial advice in the yeah. family. So anybody kind of needed that advice, they would go to my dad. Anyone needed any sort of marriage in trouble, any sort of, you know, person kind of going through some stuff. Also because my mom was a nurse. Okay. She was one of the early nurses over here in Dubai, um, actually. I think she was one of the first people who had come in with a degree in nursing. Oh, wow. Um, that's when she kind of came in. Yeah, my mom came to Dubai before Dubai was... De- before UAE was UAE. So she came to UAE before, back when it used to be called the Trucial States. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, because of that, my parents being the eldest, they were like the go-to people in terms of like the family, the extended family. So when I kind of saw that my mom, because my mom was the unofficial counselor in, in essence, right? So right. I kind of saw what it was and I saw what the potential of the job was. And I was like, hey, I, I think I want to do that. And I then went and found out what was needed to do that. And I did the degree. Amazing. That's that's. Yeah, that's that's a good reason. I, I like that. I and so now you're the counsel for the family, then, huh? No, okay, because we're not allowed to counsel family. But at the oh, same okay. time, all it's right. something that you do get as a comment all the time. That you know, family. I think any and every psychologist can kind of relate to that. Whereby um, you get that from family. Oh, you should understand this. You're the counselor, or you talk to this person. You're the counselor, or uh. you're the psychologist, and you're like. You're not supposed to cancel family. I mean, I will I will give them information and I'll kind of guide them and all of that stuff. But obviously, I'm not going to cancel my family. I mean, you're too close to them for that yeah, to kind of be but, there. But yeah. yeah. Um, That's true. Yeah. 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 But yeah, um, for, for relationships and all of that stuff, um, I guess in some ways, my mom now seeks advice from me. Oh, that's good. Yeah. 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 And you can sort of give like tips and tricks for things oh that that's what to say and yeah oh my god that's a say she must be very proud of the degree worked (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah absolutely um if my mom could have walked across the stage and got my doctoral degree instead of me she would have oh bless oh that's amazing so let's talk about counseling and professional support so is there a right time for couples to seek counseling and support from a psychologist um, ideally, the they would seek support before they truly 100% needed it. Right. That would be the most ideal time. Um, because statistics kind of say that uh, couples usually seek counseling only uh, two to three years after they recognize there's a problem. So that's on average at least four years after problems have begun. Four years? Uh, yeah. And, and so okay. that's close to three years after they've acknowledged there's a problem sometimes longer. And um, so ideally, they would kind of get the counseling either as soon as they acknowledge the problem, or even sometimes before that, when they kind of felt like things were going a little little wonky, and they weren't able to kind of resolve issues. Because um, what and, and and a lot of marriage counselors and, 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 and people who see families can kind of attest to this that 
it is actually really, really um, unfortunate when you're kind of sat in the room with a couple whereby they kind of just don't have it in them to kind of work on the relationship because yeah. they've been doing it for so long that they just, they're exhausted from the effort. And, and you can really empathize with that. But it's also one of those that, you know, had you kind of come in a few years earlier, this would have been just a completely different conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's just very unfortunate. So the most ideal time for couples to kind of come in is the moment you kind of begin to kind of realize that you are having arguments that escalate, arguments that don't resolve. Um, um, you know, a couple of years into the relationship, if you're still having arguments that are to do with the beginning of the relationship that have been unresolved from then, um, which tells me that you're not very good at maybe resolving issues, that is when you guys need to kind of come in. Right. Most likely, that's when couples need to come in. And the same thing for individual therapy as well. As soon as you acknowledge there's a problem, um, when I'm working with people with anxiety, people who kind of just recently had anxiety or their very first panic attack, and they have no idea what just happened to them. And you give them the diagnosis of anxiety that what you experience is anxiety. There's such relief in, in kind of knowing what, what happened to them yeah. and that it has a label and that, you know, there's nothing wrong with them as such and all of that. So um, I would kind of say, you know, as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, one of my clients have also kind of said, you know, coming to couples counseling in some ways can be seen as, you know, servicing your the way that you would think about servicing your car mm, yeah you go in every now and then to get your car checkup done you know you would come in every now and then to just have a chat with the counselor on your relationship and how you guys are doing and that's yeah. also absolutely fine we're not going to kind of go oh no you don't have any serious problems come back when you do yeah, yeah. Um, you know it's almost like you know we like heading off problems if we can so that's amazing. That's actually a really good way to do it. I mean, I say to people, if you have a burst water pipe, you would call a plumber. So if you have an organizing problem, you would call an organizer. But And it's the same for you. Like, yes, if, if the car is broken or even it needs a service, you need to service everything in your life, whether it's physical it's or mental. Yeah, exactly. If the engine line is flashing, your car is making weird noises, you take it to the mechanic. Same thing. So if your partner's making weird noises, go to a relationship counselor. That's just exactly that. That should be your banner. If your if your partner's (laughs) making a funny noise, bring him in. (laughs) Bring him in. (laughs) It's like oh my god, that's that's just brilliant. Um, and how do you help the couples when they do finally come in to deal with their issues? Okay, so um, my way of working with couples is what's kind of called Milan systemic. And in systemic, the easiest way to kind of describe that is um, if you've ever seen one of those transparent watches whereby you can kind of see all the little cogs and and all of them kind of being connected to each other, that's a system. And the idea of the way that I work with couples is that couple unit is a system. So any and all issues that exist in the system exist between the two partners. So um, my kind of work kind of eliminates the idea of fault and blame because um, this person's reacting to this person and interacting with this person. But if this person was talking, having that exact same conversation with somebody else, then that problem wouldn't result. And if this person responded in that exact same way to somebody else, then maybe that problem also wouldn't exist. Yeah. So the problem kind of exists between the two of them rather than within the two, within the each individual in some ways. Right. Okay. And having conversations in that manner for me kind of really helps them both acknowledge that they both need to work towards a solution. So right. it's whatever problems you guys have, 
how can you guys be a team and both work towards a solution? That's one of the tactics that I kind of teach them. Um, you know, finding out and seeing couple communication issues. Uh, that's another one whereby, you know, when they kind of get stuck in the blame cycle or an argument cycle, how do we break out of it? Yep. How to argue properly. That's one of the biggest ones that I think I kind of teach couples. Um, okay. How to kind of stop arguments from escalating. So, you know, the basics in, in I almost want to say anger management, but it's not really just anger management, but just kind of the basics in terms of like how to stop an argument from escalating and getting to a bad place. Right. Um, that's that's one of the absolute basics. So how, how do you stop arguments escalating? I would love to know this. You learn to take a timeout. Okay. Oh, right. Like go on a naughty step and just like with the kids. Well, I don't kind of call it that. Um, but at the, same <laughs> okay. time, the idea is, so um, it's very specifically called timeout and not called walking away. Right. Because um, if two partners are arguing and sometimes you kind of feel like this is going to be my only chance to say something, you don't, you don't want the other person to walk away. Or if you kind of have any, uh, insecurities or abandonment issues, or you kind of feel like, hey, my partner is walking away from me and it doesn't feel very nice, yeah. then knowing that you're taking a time out and you're going to come back and talk with each other, there has to be the most important element of a timeout is that when you call a timeout, a timeout, it happens. Right. But also um, that when you, that, that you kind of come back, you commit to coming back to it and talking about it when you're in a calmer state. Right. Oh, um, okay. So the old piece of advice about sort of never going to bed mad, it's one of the worst pieces of advice ever. Because when you're angry, yeah, go to bed. You know, yeah. just go to bed. Don't don't have a conversation when you're mad. That's actually what it should be. Yeah. But when you're angry, don't have a conversation. You should learn to kind of, and in a timeout, the idea would be not to kind of go to a naughty step, but go do something that'll kind of cool you down. Right, okay. a naughty step does not cool you no, down. No, no. Okay, don't call step. it a naughty step. Yeah, no. Just If you're sitting on a naughty step, you're just doing in what your partner just yeah. did. Yeah. Uh, that made you just so mad. So instead of that, go distract yourself. Go talk to a friend about something else entirely. Go go for a walk, go for a swim, go for, go for a jog, go for a shower. You know, All there's right. so many different things that you can kind of do to physiologically cool yourself down okay. in a lot of ways. Go do all of that and then come back and talk about it. And one of the things that I like to ask my, part, my my couples to do is that before you come back and talk about it, think about what you would like to apologize for. Think about it in terms of uh. what did I say or do that I kind of need to apologize for. And, and, and one of the ways that you have to think about it is irrespective of what the other person said or did, what should you have not said and done? Right. So it can't be, oh, he did this. That's why I did this. It's it's almost like, yes, but you have to take ownership for your behavior. So irrespective of what the other person did, yeah. what shouldn't you have done? How did you make this worse? How could you apologize for making it worse? And that way you commit to trying next time to not make it worse. Right. Oh, yeah. that's, that's fascinating. Like, and it's taking ownership of your, your behavior and your thoughts and your words. That's... that's Absolutely. Yeah, I, I need to think about that as well for myself. <laughs> God. Yeah, well, one of the most common couples counseling tools is, um, t- you know, teaching couples to kind of start using I, th- I statements. Right. I think, I feel, because obviously that taking ownership is huge. There's a huge difference between saying you did this versus yes. I feel um, hurt or I feel you know, abandoned in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
there's a big difference. And and then the response you get also is 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 very different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I'm, I see that with couples as well when I work with them, like, you know, in the house and you hear them saying things and you're like, okay, you need to, guys, need to take a step back now and think about what you're saying. Um, talking about couples and what I deal with, I, you know, I obviously see a lot of cluttered houses and they always blame each other you know usually it's the husband's a hoarder or she's a the wife's a hoarder they don't get rid of anything blah 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 do you hear that as a part of an issue when you're working with couples is is clutter coming up with you it does more often than not um again um one of the things that you probably found is that clutter is actually also very associated with anxiety mm. so people who tend to kind of hoard stuff tend to kind of have anxiety about letting go i have anxiety yeah. about you know losing things and all of that which is why they kind of hoard stuff so obviously i do work with part uh, people whereby one partner does have anxiety and as part of that anxiety they kind of are hoarders and they kind of you know find it really difficult to let go of stuff, find it very difficult to kind of, you know, um, even sometimes give up any kind of control to their partner. Yep. So they're in a relationship that's that not only is one partner a hoarder, um, they might be in a relationship that's also very, very uneven, whereby mm. there might be a dynamic whereby it's almost like a parent-child dynamic a little bit. Yeah. Because one partner is kind of going, you know what, I can't trust you to do this stuff because in some ways of their anxiety, not letting them being able to do that. And um, that dynamic obviously does damage in a lot of different ways. In So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing that's a dynamic that you've seen. Yeah. And I'm, I, yeah. Um, I'm hoping most of the time that with the clients I work with, it helps to alleviate a lot of it because the physical clutter is going away. So it helps the mental clutter as well in their house. Um, but I do have and research has actually shown that that does help people yeah. with depression, for example, who find it really overwhelming to kind of manage their environment um, when they kind of do get around to it or when they've had friends and family or when somebody else has kind of helped them manage their environment a little bit and they have a decluttered environment. It makes a huge impact on mental health. Mm. Um, they kind of say that decluttering kind of makes a huge impact or having an organized environment in front of you makes you feel a bit more organized, make you yeah. feel prepared and ready and um, it, so it helps in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I mean, I do. I see the mountain fall off. You know, like you can feel that they're not droopy. They're happy, and they're they're sitting upright and they're smiling. You know, the beginning they were like, oh, oh God, what? Oh, you're gonna touch my stuff. And now it's like, oh, everything's fine. So I mean, it's 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 wonderful to see. But I mean, I just deal with the, I deal with a bit of the mental stuff talking to them, but like not in the same way as you do. So yeah, it's 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 good to get that perspective as well. Well, but it's important work. So, you know, uh, as you kind of said, for me, that is an important aspect of them kind of learning to let go. So you being a facilitator to that kind of really helps. So that's a person who's on the path and on the journey to kind of go, okay, I acknowledge I have an issue and I need to do something about it. And, and that's really, really good. And how do you help them like when they come to you um, as a psychologist and, and and counseling them when they have these issues as well as OCD? Because that's the other extreme, you know, um, mm -hmm. that, that, yeah, talk to me about that. Mm -hmm. 
So with anxiety, the 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 the, the kind of therapy that I kind of use uh, with anxiety and depression, the kind of therapy that I use more more often than not is uh, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. Um, if nothing else, we at least start off with that because for me, that kind of gives people a lot of information and gives them immediate tools to kind of work on their mood management and all of that. Yeah. Uh, so it's a good starting tool to kind of get get some anxiety management strategies in place. And then we can kind of begin to kind of do the deeper work whereby challenging their thinking and seeing where the anxieties kind of come from, mm-hmm. making those connections in terms of like, well, well, what is triggering my anxiety? How do I kind of sort of, um, because one of the basics of CBT and one of the basics uh, that, that I kind of when um, so sorry, taking a step back, uh, CBT in some ways is cognitive behavioral therapy. And right. according to me, that should have been actually taught in high school. It's just such basic stuff right. that for, according to me, it literally should be taught in high school because it's the basics of mood management. It's just, it, just the understanding that your mood is linked with your emotions, which is linked to your behavior, which is linked to your biology or your physiology. And all right. of them kind of interact with each other. Oh, so when wow, you okay. think about it, it's really commonsensical. It's yeah. really commonsensical when you think about it. But knowing to separate out those different elements kind of gives you an idea of what you can tackle. Mm-hmm. Because what I do tell my clients is that when they're overwhelmed with anxiety, so in a moment when they're having a panic attack or an anxiety attack, that's not the time to kind of rationalize their thinking. Right. That is the time to kind of do things that will physiologically manage your anxiety, like breathing exercises or relaxation exercises. When you're in a better space, you can then kind of move to doing things that help you de-stress. Um, so a lot of people with anxiety will kind of say cleaning helps them de-stress. Yeah. Um, or going outside, being in nature helps them de-stress, going for a walk, a lot of different things. So you then tackle it via behavior. And when your anxiety is finally in a place whereby you feel like you can manage it a little bit, mm-hmm. that is when you can tackle the, the the cognitions or the thoughts that kind of drive the anxiety, because that's the big, biggest element of the anxiety. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that does. That does. And that's interesting to hear as well. And I haven't, I think I've done like small courses on CBT, but not a lot. And yeah, and I mean, I have mental health issues and I've I've talked about it before on the podcast. Um, And I have, I take my, I call it my happy pill. Um, And, you know, I've been doing it for like 16 years or something, having pills. But, and I'm fine about that, but it would be good to have that kind of resource as well. And I think I need to look up in that because, um, yeah, you know, it's fine having the happy pill. I'm normal, as they call it, but there are moments when it, it gets overwhelming. So it would be good to find that. And if if it's common sense, I like that kind of logical common sense kind of process to stuff. <laughs> CBT though allows for medication because in some ways, if you kind of think about it, the the biology or physiological element of it kind of is medication in some ways. How can yeah. you kind of improve your mood? Medication kind of helps with that as well. Yeah. So yeah. But you're right now doing it through medication. What CBT would kind of hope you to t- uh, to teach you is to kind of do it with the other two elements, with the behavior and with the with the cognitions. Right. And for me, the cognitions are the most effective ones. They're the hardest and they kind of take the longest in some ways, but right. they're the most effective ones also because once you kind of learn how to kind of change the way that you once you realize that your brain is not being entirely truthful to you and you kind of learn to examine what your thoughts are and learn to challenge them and rationalize them, um, it puts you on a whole different level in terms of like control, in terms of being able to go, oh, okay, I know what my brain's trying to do and I can put it on the right path, so to speak. 
that's fascinating. And I think I need to meet up with you to talk about this a bit more in private. <laughs> because, sure. yeah, I can see it. Already my brain's going, yeah, there, there, there's issues, Shalina. Um, <laughs> um, and I've, I've talked about me having happy pills, but, you know, I know a lot of people are not keen on taking medicine. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? So you, would you recommend then not to take the med or to take the medicine and do CBT? What's your your view on so, um Research has kind of shown again, and I, I would fall back on the research. Research has kind of shown that that um, medication plus therapy is a lot more effective than medication alone and therapy alone. Right. There are a lot of people who kind of have this entire idea that if I'm doing it with the help of medication, then I'm somehow failing to kind of do this on my own. And for me, yeah. uh, one of the things that I always tell my clients is if there's a hard way of doing something and an easy way of doing something, what do you get by doing it the hard way? Mm. Like yeah. you're not going to win a prize at the end of it that you did it the hard way. Mm. There's a slightly easier way to do it. Um, and if you kind of need to do it the easier way, um, that's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you won't, you won't kind of blame somebody for using a crutch when they have a sprained ankle. Yes. Um, and one of the things that I always tell people, especially about medication, is uh, especially people who kind of are really hesitating to use it and want to get, get off it as soon as possible, um, is that I think I, I give them the crutch analogy that when you've got a sprained ankle, the ultimate aim is for you to learn to walk by yourself. Yeah. But when you kind of, but initially you have to use that crutch so you can kind of give your leg a bit of a rest so yeah. that you can watch by yourself. You don't have to use that crutch for the rest of your life but you do need to use it when you need to use it. Mm. That's so, perfect. That is a perfect analogy. It's, it's yeah. Yeah, yeah. As you can see, I use a lot of analogies. Yes, I, I love it. A lot I love of analogies. It. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's, a, that's the nature of our work, that we have to use these analogies to get to people. But it's, it's, it's it so, helps. yeah, it helps. Exactly. And it's logical. It's common sense. And when you hear it, it makes complete sense. But you just need yeah. to hear that line for it yeah. to be like, damn, yes, that that's 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 true. Yeah, you're spot on. That's, and and I can tell you've used that line many times with people. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. But if it absolutely. works, it works. It's a perfect line. It's a perfect. Um, so let's talk about OCD because you work with clients who have OCD, um, mm -hmm. and I mean, I have a lot of people say that they're OCD, and I I'm like, you're not OCD. You you just you like things. I mean, and people always say to me, oh, you must be OCD. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. OCD. I have cats. They move things around all the time. I give up. Like <laughs> I don't, I, I'm in shock. They're all fighting before, but they're not in front of us right now. But you know, it's so, it's so, it's used so incorrectly so often that it's, it's great to hear you're here. You can tell us about that, like what it is and how you help clients who actually do have it. So uh, <laughs> that's actually a really, really common one. I do have clients who kind of come up to me and kind of go, I have OCD and I'm like, okay, let's talk about it. Let's actually see you if you do or not, because yeah. um, it's become one of those words that kind of has lost all meaning. Like the way a psychologist would consider OCD would be so different. Yeah. Um. So what OCD is, is first to kind of break it down, um, it's obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, which means that you kind of have uh, intrusive, disturbing um, thoughts that kind of come in as part of the obsessive bit. 
And the behavior that you kind of do to manage that anxiety is the compulsion spit. So it's not about wanting things a particular way. The people who want things a particular way, they need things to be a particular way because otherwise it generates anxiety for them. So if it generates significant enough anxiety that they literally cannot tolerate it, when things are not right, that is um, that is when that would kind of come under the category of OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. Right. But there are many different kinds of forms and there are many different kinds of behaviors. Uh, checking behaviors are the most common, but um, you know, you have the light switches, you have the behaviors are all the compulsion element of it, right. but you have a different compulsion element of it, which can also be mental, whereby you do a mental checking or mental framing um, of of statements in a certain way. So the obsessions can be anything. It can be worry about losing your family, worry about things going wrong and and, and wanting that sense of control. I think that's in some ways the very core at OCD that you're kind of thinking that if you can control your environment or your behavior or think of things in a certain way, whatever the compulsions are, you can somehow prevent the obsession from happening, the thought from right. happening. Right. Um, so okay. it's an uh, attempt to kind of control in that way. And the really frustrating thing about somebody with o- that uh, people with OCD will, will kind of tell you is they know it's illogical. They mm. know it's irrational. But there is that really small voice inside of them that goes, but what if it does happen? What if mm. this time I don't kind of put things in a certain way or I don't double check something and something happens? Right. What if what, what what about then? How am I going to feel then? So I might as well that then kind of continue doing this. And obviously then over time it kind of gets worse and worse and worse. Right. So, okay. And how do you deal with clients who have OCD? So one of the things that I kind of say about OCD is that, um, so the gold standard of working with OCD is exposure and response prevention in some ways, whereby right. you kind of have the um thought, you have the, uh, whatever the compulsion is, and you kind of learn to not react to it. Right. You learn to kind of just not do the compulsive behavior and you kind of try and create more and more space between the two right. by teaching that person. So going back to CBT, that's exactly where it kind of comes in, uh, in about teaching strategies to manage your anxiety. Right. Because once you feel like you can control your anxiety and you can manage your anxiety, that is when you can actually, if you think about it, let go of those strategies and trust that you know those strategies so you don't need to kind of like, so it's almost like, I can allow myself to get really anxious because I know I can manage my anxiety if push comes to shove. Right. But I can also try and just give it a little bit of time and see what happens. Yeah. Um. But that is something that I, I, it sounds so easy when I kind of say it, but it's not so easy at all. When mm. when when you kind of are doing it, it's not so easy at all. It's it takes a very very long time because those people have. For years and years and years and years and years, they've had the obsession and they've done the compulsion. So they're kind of like really linked in with each other. So kind of trying to create some space between the two is just something that takes a really, really long time, a lot of patience and a lot of hard work. Um, So it's not easy, but it it is possible. It's absolutely possible. But for me, but one of the things that does tend to happen is that they will still then be a little wary around their trigger words 
And I would think that, you know, that's that's okay. That's yeah. absolutely okay for you to be a little wary. Um, mm. You know, you kind of just don't go back into the compulsive behaviors, though. Yeah, yeah. And that is something they kind of need to be a little bit mindful of. Um, so it is possible, but it's not very easy work. How do you know that you have got to that obsessive and that compulsive kind of thing? Because you're saying people have it for years. And I remember Nadal has it. He He's very OC. I mean, he does the whole ritual every time before he serves. So he's, he's definitely got OCD. But how can you get realize you actually have it earlier do you ever have people who've realized early or is it always long no absolutely as a matter of fact um the age i feel like it most commonly sometimes happens is um actually um i've I've worked with a lot of girls whereby it happens in sort of um as they kind of are finishing high school and then kind of going on okay um because if you kind of think about it or or just in high school and in their final years because that's actually one of the most stressful times. So one of the things that you also have to acknowledge about OCD is the OCD is a mask. Right. So as odd as it sounds, your brain feels like there's a problem it can't solve. So your brain is trying to give you something that you can control. Right. So you, you can't control what grades you're going to get for your uh, O-levels or GCSEs or, or 10th board or whatever. Yeah. So what your brain kind of does or 12th board and what your brain does is goes, oh, here, here's something you can kind of worry about yeah. so that you you don't worry about this other thing. Right. Let me give you something that your your brain t- tries to give you something that you think that that you can chew on, that you think you can solve, that you think you can control. Right. And that illusion of control is what kind of loops you in in the first place. Okay. Oh wow. That's this is so, fascinating. So part of it is recognizing that it's just a mask. Yeah. That if you learn how to have anxiety management strategies at the bottom of it then you kind of don't need that link in some ways. And that is what makes it possible to kind of unlink and stay unlinked yeah, yeah. in some okay. ways. So during really stressful times, um, that is when people will kind of, when they start having all thoughts or thoughts that kind of feel like that's not them. Yeah, That for me is, uh, you know, right off the bat, starting uh, with OCD a little bit. Okay. okay. Whereby people kind of have, you know, worries about things that they know they can't control or they feel like they have to do things a certain way and all of that. Mm. And if, you know, their parents and family around them can kind of see that happening, yeah. that can sometimes be one of those things. But um Sometimes some of these behaviors kind of go off by themselves because they kind of happen in short periods of time. As I said, they happen when you're most anxious and stressed. Yeah. And then when the period of anxiety kind of goes away, the child stops doing it. So that's 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 something that parents kind of go, oh, you know, it's not happening. But one of the things that inevitably ends up happening is that as a child opens up to their parent about having OCD, mm-hmm. they will now kind of start doing the behaviors a lot more because okay. they've only kind of come up to their parents because it's getting worse. Yeah. And now their parents know about it, so they don't need to hide it anymore. So it appears like it's gotten worse, but it hasn't actually in right. in, in in some ways. They're just kind of being a bit more open about it, which is right. not a bad thing. Yeah, because yeah. the more open you are about your anxieties, the the sort of less big a deal it'll seem, mm. if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, more yeah. you talk about your anxieties, the more you bring them into the light, the more you bring them into the conversation, the less ridiculous they'll seem the less control and power they'll have over you in a lot of ways I love that I I do love that and I mean for someone who has suffered from anxiety yeah I can yeah I I I love that because I have this 
have had this issue that I don't want to burden people with my issues. Mm -hmm. So I won't talk about them. And then of course it manifests into having a breakdown or, you know, having issues happen afterwards. So yes, it's good to talk about it and let it out. And absolutely. But it's changing the thought, the mindset to say, telling other people is not going to be a burden on them. It's helping you to get it out of your system kind of. So, Absolutely, because in some ways, by even you kind of sometimes verbalizing things and and being willing to kind of like being so one of the exercises that they made us do when I was doing my doctor's studies, I remember this is we had to write down our worst fear to right. kind of empathize with people with OCD and anxiety. We had to write down our worst fear. Right. Half the class couldn't. I I, I probably was one of the people who couldn't. Half the class couldn't write it down because even though we kind of knew it was ridiculous writing down your worst fears somehow felt like you would make it come true. You would make Uh, it happen. Right, yeah, yeah. And that would become more real somehow. So it is real when it's in your head, but you kind of don't, it it doesn't feel as real when it's in your head. So when you kind of put it down on paper, it is a lot more concrete. Yeah. But then because it's more concrete, if you kind of think about it, you can challenge it better. You can rationalize it better. Um, You know, all of those things. One of the reasons why I really recommend journaling is because of all of those things. You cannot write as fast as you can think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. By journaling, you automatically slow your thoughts down. Yeah. And one of the things that anxiety does is it speeds your thoughts up so you don't think things through. So you can't think things through in some ways. So you know, when that fight or flight kind of kicks in, you're not meant to think things through at that point in time. So learning to kind of be calmer so that you can think things through and talking to people kind of helps you do that in a lot of ways. So um, I would really recommend that. Yeah. That's that's brilliant. So yeah, so talk and journal is the key points on that. And and I need to do that more myself. Um, So let's talk about you. So as you know, it's an organizing podcast. So what are your top tips that you do for yourself to stay organized in your day-to-day life? Uh, the one and only tip I really have is I write everything down. I just really? write everything down. Um, it's actually a tactic that also works really well for psychologists. So right next to my chair where I kind of sit for, for therapy, I have post-its um, right. within easy reach. Why? Because one of the things that has to happen in my session is I need to focus 100% on the person in front of me. Yeah. Now, if I have something that's going on in my head continuously that I need to kind of get done... I'm not going to be able to focus on that person 100%. So by just kind of writing something down that I need to get done or that is coming into my head over and over and over again, I kind of make sure that it's written down. I can kind of have it and I can deal with it once I'm done dealing with this person in front of me so I can focus on this person in front of me. So it really, for me, it it just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a massive list person. I have lists. I have lists for everything. I have lists for... Work chores, personal chores. I'm a big fan of post-its. I love I'm it. I'm a big fan of post-its and scrap paper. Um, I, I like scrap paper and, okay. and post-its. Yeah, yeah. That's the, that's, the only thing is if then you have lots of uh, scrap paper and post-it notes to declutter afterwards. Or do you true, declutter it straight away? I'm really good with that. So it's okay. <laughs> kind of done. Or if a list is beginning to look really messy, I'll then kind of start a new one and organize it and throw away the old one and stuff like that. So I love I'm, it. I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. So I, yeah. but somehow putting pencil to paper for me is the biggest thing. It's also very therapeutic. Yeah. So having a list, a, a physical list, 
rather than a, uh, you know, a, a sort of typing things out. Typing things out doesn't work for me. Yeah. Um, I even have the Galaxy Note, where which has the uh, pen, just because that act of writing a to-do list out is just so much better than typing it out. Um, wow, yeah. It just works for my brain. Yeah. But a lot of people are going like that because, I mean, I do it electronically because my life is on my phone. Um, but I have a lot of friends and clients who are going back to writing because it is more therapeutic and it does help them to get it all out of their brain. So, yeah, totally understand. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have a to-do list on my desk that I can write on whenever anything comes into my head as well so yeah totally yeah yeah love it love it that's a top tip for you that's brilliant and you know it helps everybody so it's good to get it out of your head as well isn't it like as soon as anything comes in your head that's why my phone is always in my hand everywhere because as soon as something comes in my head I write on my phone (laughs) exactly and that's really important yeah yeah. that way you don't have to carry it in your head you don't have to kind of and, and the same thing with anxiety the same thing with any of your worries if you put them down you don't have to carry them in your head yeah it is it's true it's so true I'm, I'm brilliant all right now let's talk I watch a lot of tv and movies so I love to find out what my you know guests are watching right now so what are you watching on tv currently um I, well the problem is I've kind of finished a lot of the all all the sort of Marvel TV series and all the Star Wars TV series because that is oh no I'm currently watching Andor with my husband I am but, trying um, I am I am stuck yeah I'm on I think episode four of Andor I I think I'm further along than episode four but finding the time with me and my husband it's not yeah. very easy like we have, okay. I have a kid as well so it's okay. just, yeah yeah but um, uh, personally, I like medical dramas also. Okay. So um, I like New Amsterdam. I like um, The Good Doctor. Um, right. Also because it has a kid, uh, uh, sort of the main main lead is um, uh, someone who has ASD or autistic spectrum. Right. So um, so I like Good Doctor. I like uh, New Amsterdam. And another one that I'm watching is Transplant. It's, uh-huh. a, it's, a, it's also another medical drama. Wow. Um, okay. I like I medical dramas. I haven't watched medical drama, I think, since ER. I loved ER. That was my... I uh, started ER. I don't think I finished it, though, somehow. started? How young I started, are I got, you? I got, I, got, I, got a, I got way in, but I don't think I was ever able to finish it. I don't remember what happened. I think it's one of those whereby I had to change countries or something like that. And then, you know, in resettling and all that stuff, yeah, yeah. I just completely kind of, you know... Uh, and then it's one of those whereby you feel like I, I'm going to forget everything. Where did I stop? So I want to go back to the stuff yeah, yeah. and watch it all over again. But then you have to make the time for that and all of that. Yes. So yeah, there is that. There is that. Yeah. So anyway, that's good to know that. I, I have to watch. More. I I see New Amsterdam on Disney Plus, so I'll have to check it out. I think it's on Disney it's Plus. Really yeah, yeah. It's so really I, um, okay, cool. I really like the premise. It's, it's so it's really good. I would really recommend it. Okay, cool. Oh, awesome. All right. Finally, how can listeners get in touch with you? So the easiest way to kind of get in touch with uh, me is to actually call the clinic. um, Because when I am uh, at work at that point in time, um, email or emails are also good. But uh, if you get in touch with the clinic, the clinic can give you my email address. Um, But even if you email me, um, that's that's a good way because phone calls, messages are not the greatest. I do try and make sure I reply to emails within 24 hours. 
because when I'm in session, then, you know, yeah. I'm in session, you know, yeah. there's, there's, there's no getting through to me. So yeah. I know um, that feeling. I'm the same. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, uh, contact the German Neuroscience Center and contact the German Neuroscience Center. Absolutely. That's the best way to get in touch with me. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been awesome and insightful and you've given so many tips and things to me, even to make me think about how I have to change it or um, possibly book an appointment with you. Um, so yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Um, well, thank, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, 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 oh, we have to talk again. We have to talk about other things as well, Definitely. I'm sure. Um, Definitely. So thank you as always for listening to the Dichotomy podcast. If you'd like to get more tips and tricks, please get in touch and follow us on social media at D-E-C-L-U-T-T-R-M-E. Thank you again, Lavina, and thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.